today. And as we go through this, you're going to see why. Um, I love Peter. He is, uh, well, we'll talk about it when we get there. But, um, but first Peter chapter one, and let's look at verse one through 12. I want to make one other announcement. Um, we're, we're starting Sunday school back in earnest, and we're going to be looking through uh, the Lord's Supper. And this week, we kind of did the introduction of the Lord's Supper. Very good discussion about what the Lord's Supper is and the, the purpose of the Lord's Supper and why we need to um, do it and, and understand it. And if you're interested in that, please come next week. We'll start at 9 a.m. Um, it's a discussion-based format, so I tend to ask a lot of questions, which means I tend to go off topic a lot. But, um, but we, we managed to wrangle it back, and I think it would be profitable for you if you um, wanted to, uh, to know a little bit about more about the Lord's Supper. 1 Peter chapter 1, and read verse 1 through 12. Um, the, the book of Peter, is, you, know, you can probably read it in about 16, 17 minutes. And I encourage you to do that. Um, what, you know, we're going to read uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 12 today. And it's Peter's sort of introduction to the letter. Hear now the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be uh, yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which Angels long to look. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, uh, be with your people now. Um, we desperately need to hear from you. 
Uh, Father, this is, these are your people. This is your word. And we pray that you might cement them to uh, their hearts. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, normally I don't do introductions to books, probably because um, the book in and of itself ends up being its own introduction. You can go through it and learn from it. But I want to take some time and do uh, just a brief introduction because it's so potent, right? So, so let's look. I want us to look at three things actually in the first verse by way of in, uh, first three verses by way of introduction. I want to look at Peter. Um, you know, who is Peter? I want to look at who is he writing to, and then I want to look at what is he writing about. So, first of all, who is Peter? You know, if I were to ask you, is Peter? All sorts of imageries will come in your mind regarding who Peter is. But for me, the chief Im- Im- uh, imagery that I think describes Peter to a T was that fateful night when he chopped off the soldier's ear in the garden. How many people are with me? Like, I, you know, when I think of Peter, I just think of that imagery. Why? Because it says so much about him. I mean, you know, it's like he's packing heat, you know, getting ready to, like, fight at a drop of a hat. He's impulsive. He doesn't think about what he's doing. He just chopped off a guy's ear, which, by the way, I think was on purpose. Like, it wasn't like he was some wild man. He, he knew what to do with that sword. And so he very carefully just like, you know, and chopped off his ear. And, and it's, it just explains everything you need to know about Peter. Brash, a fighter, in your face, loves deeply. Because why did he chop off the guy's ear? Because he loved Jesus Christ, right? He was a rebel at heart. That's Peter, right? And that's some of you inside here. You're, you're impulsive. You're a rebel at heart. Okay, easy, you know, difficult to, to kind of put your arms around that person. That's Peter. That's the imagery of Peter that we get in the gospel. But I want to introduce you to Peter in a different way. The Peter of First Peter, the Peter who wrote this book. That Peter is like a mighty stallion that's been humbled by Jesus Christ. Look no further than John chapter 21, 15 through 17, when he is in front of Jesus, a broken man, a man that's been humbled by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is talking to Jesus, and Jesus is telling him, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And what is he doing here? He's feeding Jesus' lambs. He's feeding Jesus' sheep. All through this book, you're going to be introduced to a heart of a shepherd, our shepherd, really. As an apostle, he's going to be instructing us. He's going to be talking to us. He's going to be shepherding our hearts together. That's what we see here. We see a a Peter who was a wild stallion, but now through the power of the Holy Spirit has been used by God or is going to be used by God to do a wonderful thing within the life of the church. That's who Peter is. The second thing is this. Who is he writing to? The scriptures tell us in verse number one, he's writing to elect exiles. What does that mean? What does it mean to be an an elect exile? Well, Peter is telling us right here, by telling us who the elect exiles are, he's describing our existence in the world. If you are a Christian, you are an elect exile. Now, you grew up, or you probably heard if you've been around a church enough, you need to be in the world, but not of the world. You need to be in the world and not of the world. What does that mean? It means you're an elect exile. I love how one commentator put it. 
To be an elect exile is to be at home in Christ, but foreign to every other aspect of the world. As a Christian, you are an elect exile. This world is not your home, and you shouldn't act like your world. this world is your home. You should be distinct and different. Recently, uh, my uh, sister-in-law and my nephew was trapped in the U.S. because they got a negative COVID test. And they were in the U.S. for three weeks. And, and every so often, they would call me. And what, what surprised me is, you know, they're from the Bahamas. And Bahamians are very distinct, right? You know, with their accent. And I'm from the Bahamas. I don't have much of an accent anymore. But, man, they do. So every time I spoke to them, it was obvious that they were not from America. Because they would ask me simple questions. And here's the biggest thing. If you ever meet a Bahamian, we have no sense of distance. Our distance is governed by 7 miles by 21 miles. You want to know why? Because that's the size of our island, right? That's the size of New Providence. It's 7 miles by 21 miles. So if a Bahamian tells you that some, some, something is right around the corner, it is literally right around the corner. When I found out, when I came to America, when they said something was right around the corner, I found out they're liars. It's not right around the corner. You all have no... You all, your sense of direction is always governed by a car. In the Bahamas, our sense of direction is always governed by our two legs. And immediately, immediately, when I started talking to them, I had to remember they are elect exiles. So when I gave them a distance, I would often say, by the way, that's by car. Or if you do this, it's by this. I, like, I, I had to educate them and train them. Why? Because their mindset, their way of living is that they are Bahamians and they are, they're, at, they're here in the United States. And when they finally got their uh, positive, negative COVID test and I called them up, you could hear them rejoicing in the back, right? And I say, well, sorry, I still get to live here. I'm glad you're like, excited to go back to your home. But they were elated to go back to their home. Why? Because they were elect exiles. And they knew that. They knew that this wasn't their home. And they longed for their home. That's these people here. They are elect exiles. We are elect exiles. We don't belong here. We were born again for somewhere else. And when we treat this world as our home, when we, when we treat this world like this, all there is, then we miss the point of the gospel. So that's who these people are. They're elect ex exiles. And what is he writing them about? He is writing them to talk to them about suffering. Specifically, how to endure suffering and trials in their life. That's why he's talking to them. How to endure suffering and trials in their life. You know, um, right now there are people in this world that are undergoing incredible suffering. We, we think of the Afghan Christians. We think of the Christians in China. And we also think of us right? We're suffering. We're under a burden. I love what, how one commentator put it. He said that these Christians were experiencing various kinds of trials that were causing them varying degrees of grief and suffering. That's all of us. All of us are undergoing some level of trial and suffering. It may not be like the Afghan Christians. You know, they're undergoing tremendous suffering. They're being kicked out of their homes. They're being persecuted. They're being killed. They're being pressed down, right? Their suffering is real. The church in China, their suffering is real. 
but, but your suffering is real as well. It might not be on that level, but it's still a real suffering. You're still feeling the weight of living under pandemic. College students, right? You come back, you're excited about uh, starting the new year, no restrictions, everything's good. Then all of a sudden now you're faced with the same reality of a pandemic. And you're wondering, am I ever going to have a normal college year, especially you freshmen and sophomores? But that's your reality, and that's real. I don't want to minimize that. All of us here are suffering, and we need to be fed by Peter what, how we should suffer. We should be told by Peter, we should be given a vision of what it's like to suffer well. And that's what Peter does. And, and, and w- the way Peter does it, we see in verse 3 down to verse 12 in, in its totality. And here it is. First of all, Peter says, if you're going to suffer well, you need to find strength in who you are. That's point number one. And number two, you need to find confidence in what you have been given. First of all, you need to find strength in who you are. Next, you need to find confidence in what you've been given. Let's look at that in the text. First of all, verse number three, who are you? Paul says, uh, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercies has caused you to be born again. Now pause there. Born again. What a wonderful word. Born again. That's who you are. You're born again. Now, most of us, when we've heard the teaching of born again, we think it's connected to conversion. When I was growing up, born again means there was a conversion. You heard the gospel, and and something happened in your heart. Your heart was strangely warmed, and you might have walked an aisle, or you might might have said a prayer and made a decision. That's that's what being born again meant. Now, I'm not saying that born again doesn't have an element of conversion in it, but that's not what the sum total of what the Bible says. To be born again means that you have a complete change of nature. Think about it this way. Think about Paul on the road to Damascus. When Paul was on the road of Damascus, what happened to him? He he was a Pharisee. He was prideful. He was haughty. And what happened when God met him on the road to Damascus? His nature was changed. In fact, the word for born again here is such an interesting word. It's anaganao. And it actually doesn't mean to be born of a woman. It actually means to have your nature change as a result of who your father is. That's what the word actually means, to be born again, to have your nature change based on who your father is. When Paul was walking on the road to Damascus, what happened to him? His nature, he was born a Pharisee. That's who his lineage was. That's how he grew up. He grew up a Pharisee, but when he met God on the road to Damascus, what happened to him? His nature was completely changed. And now, as a result of this changed nature, He was different. And this difference was absolutely astounding. Paul was absolutely positively different, right? And we should expect you to be different if your nature has been changed. I remember um, a a few years ago, I remember reading an article by a guy who started a PETA chapter. Everyone know what PETA is? People against the ethical treatment of animals. And it was so funny, he, he went into the Peter, uh, you know, he was like ahead of this Peter charter, and he got expelled. He got expelled, and here's why he got expelled. He got expelled because he was eating meat. His wife was wearing uh, animal, like clothes made from animals. 
right? And he, he wasn't, like, expressive towards the cause of animal protection and safety. Now, now, hear me. They had a right to expel him, by the way. Because if you are a member of PETA and you're eating meat and wearing uh, animal skin and the like, you're not being faithful to the cause. There's no change in you. And so you expect him to be kicked out. In the same way, when your nature has been changed, when you are born again, when you're born of God, you are given a new nature. And we expect change to happen. Now you say, well, Pastor Dennis, why is this so important? Why is it so important with connection to suffering? Your nature needs to be changed. Here's, here's, here's why it's important. Listen to me. Here's why this is important. Because if your nature had truly been changed as a Christian, you should suffer differently. You should suffer differently as a Christian versus if you're not a Christian. That's why it's important. That's why being born again is so important to each and every per person inside this room. If you've truly been born again, then how you live and how you endure suffering should be different. Notice what Peter says twice in his book, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Listen to, to what Peter says. He says that when you suffer, you suffer for this reason, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now listen to the second one, 1 Peter 4.12. Behold, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Notice in both of those cases, uh, Peter describes um, suffering, trials like fire, like you going through a furnace. And he said two things happen when you go through suffering. Number one, the first thing that happens is either you're going to come out like pure gold. What does pure gold look like? What does suffering look like as a Christian? He goes on to say you rejoice. You rejoice in the midst of suffering if you're a Christian. You're happy. You still love. You're gracious. You keep yourself from sin. You don't seek to get even. That's what it looks like to suffer as a Christian, to come forward as pure gold. But what happens if you're not a Christian? What happens when you still have the old nature? He tells us that, yes, what happens? You burn with bitterness. You burn with vengeance. You burn with frustration. You burn with unforgiveness. When you undergo a trial, a fire, that's one way we know or see the level of your Christianity, where you are spiritually. Do you endure do you come for it as pure gold, or are you burned up as a result of it? You and I both know and have observed Christians who have suffered. And you know that some Christians have suffered, and you're like, my goodness. You can tell the Holy Spirit has delivered them and been with them through this all. And then you see some Christians, and they suffer, and it is awful. They get bitter, they get angry, they get frustrated, they burn with wrath. Why? They're being burned up. Now, why is it as a Christian, when you suffer, when you go through this furnace, when you go through this cauldron, why is it that you come forth as, as gold? Isaiah actually tells us in Isaiah chapter 1 through 3. He says this, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, 
I will be with you. When you pass uh, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Hear me, when you have been born again, you have a new nature which insulates you from the fiery trials of this world. But not only that, you also have a father who's with you in the midst of your suffering. Think of the children of Israel. When they were going through the waters, who was with them? Think with me about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they were in the fire, who was with them? One like the Son of Man. Think with me, Daniel, when he was in the lion's den. Who was with him? God. As a born-again believer, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and you are with Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is yours, and you feast on him in the gospel, when you undergo trials, it is different. You're different. Because you've been given a new nature, and you suffer differently. And you suffer differently because Jesus Christ is with you. And you know that he will never let you suffer beyond what you're able to bear. Now, I have a question. How do you suffer? This is a question of introspection. How do you suffer? Can I tell you that there are some of us inside here today, we suffer like those that have been born again. But there are some of us inside you today, we suffer very badly. When we suffer, we get angry, we get frustrated. Search your own hearts and think about it. How do you suffer? Because how you suffer reveals the nature of your faith and your testimony before the Lord. Now listen, I know that it is certainly true that some of you are generally born again. You've been born again. There's no doubt about that, but you suffer poorly. And the reason why you suffer so poorly is because you are not resting in Christ. That's the reason why you're not suffering poorly. Now, you might say, well, pastor, what does it mean to rest in Christ? That's what he tells us next, and that's point number two. What have you been given? What have you been given? Okay, notice he says that you, he, God has caused you to be born again by his great mercies. That's for your benefit. That's what great mercies actually means. It means God acting on your behalf. He mentions that they're elect exiles. What does that mean? That means that God is acting on your behalf to insulate you and protect you from suffering. But what is the blessing of being born again? Yes, you've been given a new nature. But he says you've been given two things as well. First of all, you've been given a living hope. Notice that we do not hope our way to new life. That new life or hope is the result of the new life. It's the result of you being born again. And notice he says that it's a living hope. A living hope. Now, why did Peter say that it's a living hope? It's a living hope because when you hope, when there's a confidence, assurance in God's promise, that should lead you to act and live differently. It should lead you to act and live differently. Let me give you a for example. Every Friday, my family watches a movie. We have movie and pizza night. Um, if you want to come over, just let me know, and I'll, you know, we'll make extra pizza. But pizza and movie night. And one of the things I love doing, I love letting my children watch certain movies, and then we circle back to them again. Because I love to see their reaction. Uh, so the movie that we watched this past Friday was 101 Dalmatians, <coughs> right? 
And I remember the first time we watched 101 Dalmatians, my children were on the edge of their seat holding on to me when Cruella and her henchmen were looking for the Dalmatians. When they were all put in the soot and they were running to the car, I mean, they were freaking out. And, and recently, uh, so just this past Friday, we watched it again. And true to form, they were sitting down quiet. They were just watching it and looking at it. So the first time we watched it, they were freaking out, holding on me, putting the covers over their head. But the second time, they were calm. They were sitting down. They were just watching the movie. What was different? The difference is they knew what was going to happen. And because they knew what was going to happen, they didn't have to fear. They weren't concerned. They just sat down and watched the movie. They knew that the trial was going to come. They knew and they were aware that Cruella would be looking for, um, you know, the, the Dalmatians. They knew the plot line. They knew the story. And as a result of that, they acted differently. They had a living hope. They had a living hope that the cute Dalmatian would be saved from Cruella de Vil. Which, by the way, how many of you know that it actually spells cruel devil? You know, I just figured that out about two days, like two weeks ago or something like that. Or maybe it was last year, right? Didn't know that before. But you see the difference. When you have a living hope, you act differently. When you have a living hope, everything's different. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, how do we know that we have a living hope? Notice what he says right after that. We have a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you believe in the resurrection, if you believe that the resurrection is true, that Jesus Christ died and rose again on the third day, if you believe that that's true, then Peter says you have a living hope. You have a living hope. And if you have a living hope, that means that you should act differently. That when you face the trials of this life, everything about you should be different because now you don't have a dead hope. You have a living hope. Now, what does a dead hope look like? A dead hope, imagine if my children, even though they knew the end of this story, even though they've watched 101 Dalmatians many times, imagine if they still were on the edge of their seat, still holding on to me and still freaking out. That's what a dead hope looks like. A dead hope looks like when a Christian knows how this all ends, knows the power of God, knows who God is, and they're still always in freak-out mode. That's a dead hope. Because if you're convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, if you're convinced that the Bible is true, if you're convinced that you're under the sovereign care of God, then when the trials come, you should not be in freak-out mode. You should not be falling apart. That's not to say you're not concerned. That's not to say that you don't have some concerns. But the point here is this. The whole point of you being born again isn't just to say you had a conversion experience. It's to live out the truth of the gospel. What this world needs to see is that in the midst of all the trials, the political upheaval, the pandemic, everything that's happening in our, in our lives, what this world needs to see is us, the body of Christ, having a living hope, acting differently, speaking differently, living differently. And so often, in the midst of trials and testings and tribulations, we, the people of God, forget that we've been born again, that we've been given a new nature. 
not only have we been given, given a new nature and we have a new inheritance, but Peter said, some, uh, sorry, uh, living hope, but Peter says something else that's profound to me. Notice verse number four. He says that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now, here is where we see the heart of Peter as a pastor. This is where we see the heart of Peter as a pastor. You say, Pastor Dennis, what do you mean? Peter is talking to a group of people where their inheritance, their earthly inheritance matters. They had family land. They had ancestry, um, belonging. Inheritance mattered to these people. And he, here he is talking to a group of people whose inheritance had been taken away from them because of persecution. They've lost family land. They've been disowned by their family. They've been rejected by their community. These are people who no longer have an inheritance. And he's writing to them, and he knows this. And he says, hey, do you realize that even though you've lost all of your earthly hopes, by the way, that's what suffering is. Suffering is when you and I lose all of our earthly hopes. Think about it like this. You suffer when you're sick. Why? Because one of the things you hope for is good health. You suffer when you don't have any money. Why? Because one of your earthly hope is that you have money. You could go on and on. Everything you suffer about is a result of God removing an earthly hope, the things that we normally hope in. They have lost their earthly hope, and that was their inheritance. They'd lost it. They don't have it. And so what is Peter doing? Peter is giving them a new hope founded in a new inheritance. And I love the adjectives that he used to describe the inheritance. He said that the inheritance is um, unperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And here's what he means by that. By, by saying that the inheritance are, is imperishable, he's saying that death will not take away your inheritance. By saying that the inheritance is undefiled, he said that evil will not take away your inheritance. And by saying that the inheritance is unfading, he means that time, time will not take away your inheritance. Brothers and sisters, when you are born again, not only do you get a living hope, but you get an inheritance. And that inheritance belongs to you, and it's set in heaven. And notice what he says about this inheritance, and this is just awesome. He said that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And then in verse number five, who, the who is referring back to you, by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What is he saying there? He's saying two things about your inheritance. Number one, that your inheritance is safe. That it doesn't matter what happened to you here on earth, it will not impact your inheritance in heaven. That's yours. It will never go away. It will never die. Time will not spoil it. But he also says something here that's amazing. He says that you cannot even destroy your inheritance. In other words, you can't even be the younger brother in the prodigal son and squander your inheritance. There's nothing you can do. And how do we know that? Look at the text in verse number five. Uh, the, The who there is referring back to you. You as a believer. You are being kept by the power of God, guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed. In other words, the word there for guarded is the word for garrison. It literally means to lock someone up for their own good. This is like witness protection program for the Christian, right? You are being locked up. Why are you being locked up? You're being locked up because 
you would destroy your inheritance. That you are the younger brother. You would squander it if it was up to you. You would squander your inheritance. You would throw away your inheritance. You would even turn your back on your inheritance. And what Peter is saying here is that they are so rooted and grounded in God that not only will persecution not destroy them, but God will prevent them from giving up on their faith as a result of the persecution. And let me tell you, all of us inside you today, if enough pressure was put on us, if we were put through the right furnace and fire, we would walk away from Jesus Christ. We'd walk away from the faith. Beloved, believe it or not, it is true. There is a fire so intense. There is a fire that can come on any one of us in this room that's so intense and so potent, it will consume you were it not for the protective power of Jesus Christ. One of the things in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that's so amazing is when, when Nebuchadnezzar looked into the fire, he says, there's one like the Son of Man in the fire. Remember that? There's one like the Son of Man in the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. Does it say that the Son of Man came out of the fire? No. No. And that's the imagery that God gives his people. That the one like the Son of Man is always in the fire, he's always in the den, and he's always in the waters for you. That he takes the punishment that you're supposed to take, the fires that were supposed to burn you burned him, the waters that were supposed to drown you drowned him, the lion that was supposed to consume you consumed him. You are kept, and the inheritance are kept. Your hope is kept, and the hope that he gives you is kept. It's all kept, and it's guarded by him that nobody will touch it. Why? So that you don't run away from your faith, and no one can take you away from your faith. Now, notice with me quickly, what does this have to do with verse 6 down through verse 9? I wish I had more time. This week, you should study it yourself. You'll be completely blessed by it. But verse 6 through 9 tells us this, and this is so powerful. It tells us that as God's people, because we are loved by God, we've been born again, we've been given a living hope, that we have a new inheritance, because those are signs that God loves us, we should be people that rejoice. Notice what he says, in this you rejoice. What is the in this referring to? The in this is referring to what he has said in verse 3 through 5. This glorious reality. We should be rejoicing in that. Though for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. When you undergo trials, you should still rejoice because you know that God has provided everything you need to make it through. He's made you. He's given you a new nature. He's given you a new hope. And now you have a new inheritance that can never be taken away from you. All those things are yours in Christ Jesus. How, Christian, should you react in the face of that? With rejoicing. That's what the text says. And when you rejoice, you show the world that you have a genuine faith. Not a jokey faith, not a dead faith, not a play around faith, but an actual genuine faith that belongs to you, even though it's being tested by fire. That's the power behind verse 6 and 9. Now, what is the big takeaway? Oh, this is big. What's the big takeaway? We always end with a big takeaway. This is huge. This is huge. Look at, look at me. Uh, well, not look at me. Look at the Bible. Look at the Bible. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Look at the Bible. 
verse 10 through 12. Now look, one of the most difficult parts of Peter is verse 10 through 12. Um, another really hard part of Peter we're going to find at the end of chapter 3. Right? These are so difficult. But here's what I think it's saying. And, and I want to use this as a big takeaway because it's so powerful. In, in Peter's day, the people that um, Peter's audience, these, these elect exiles, the people who they revered the most were prophets and angels. They revered the prophet and angel. If the prophet said it or an angel said it, they believed it. They trusted in it. And what is Peter saying here in verse 10 through 12 that's so amazing? He's saying this. The gospel that they have been given that has now been made real the prophets and the angels didn't have access to. And yet, and yet, they are messengers of God and kept by God. And yet they were used by God. That, that message that the prophets had concerning the salvation that they prophesied, they didn't have the full picture. Neither do the angels. That's what he means at the, at the end. Things which angels long to look. They long to understand the gospel. The prophets, even though they were mighty and powerful, long to understand the gospel. Guess what? You have the gospel. You have it in its fullness, in its riches. You have it. And if God sustained the prophets and the angels and they didn't understand the gospel, how much more will you be sustained by God? That's the power behind verse 10 and 12. You and I are in a more privileged position than the prophets and the angels. And yet they were steadfast and unmovable about the things of the Lord. How much more you and I when we go through trials and tribulations? Are you burned up? Or do you come forth as gold? That's what Peter is asking. If you have been born again, you should come out as gold. Why? Because you have a living hope. And you have an inheritance that will not fade. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, what a glorious message. And I'm glad it's not my message. <laughs> I'm glad it's your message. I'm glad it isn't my hope or anyone inside here's hope. I'm glad it's your hope that you give us a living hope. Because we serve a living Savior. I'm also glad, Father, that it is we have an inheritance that's being kept, and we're being kept for it. Because now I don't have to wonder or worry about keeping myself in it. No, 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 no. It's by your mercies. Thank you for being so merciful to each and every person in here. Thank you that your purposes in election is seen through the lens of your mercy, your compassion and love towards us. Oh, Lord, may the truth of this book and may the testimony of Peter, your faithful shepherd, feeding your sheep, sustain us during this time. In Jesus' precious holy name, amen. Amen.